Say you have 20 minutes in between classes and need something to fill the time. Or you finally get to relax after a long day and want to do something to wind down. Most of us, at least those of us with screens and internet access, will probably start trying to decide what to watch. And that's where things tend to get sticky. What platform should I stream from? Do I want to watch TV or a movie? What do I even like to watch? In theory, the idea of being able to choose from any show in the world sounds enticing, but in practice, it's usually more daunting than anything. I've famously worked a few summers in an ice cream shop that offered samples of the flavors, and without fail, the more flavors people tried, the harder their decision was. I think it's safe to say that the same sort of paradox of choice applies to streaming. Some might argue that the breadth of streaming services is a positive and goes in tandem with the golden age of television we've been experiencing. Others might argue that algorithms and infinite options have led to a decline in the quality of media overall. We're going to try to explore all of these threads in this episode as we try to figure out what big stream has made of us all. I'm Emily. I'm Max. I'm Sam. I'm Juan. And this is Arts Interrupted, the Michigan Daily's premier arts and culture podcast. If you're anything like me, you've probably spent some time calculating and budgeting your home entertainment. Now that streaming services host almost all kinds of television and film media, it can be discouraging to even look towards cable at all. Streaming platforms have flipped the traditional responsibility of the viewer on its head. Back in the day on cable, the viewer simply had to decide between a set list of channels. This took some stress off of indecisive and anxious viewers like me, but has its limits. Now on streaming services, we have the freedom, or the illusion of freedom, to simply search our media of choice and stream right away. When streaming services first came onto the scene, they were missing the dependable cable content like late night shows, morning shows, local television, and major sports games like the Super Bowl. While cable TV and its alternatives are constantly duking it out, streaming service exclusives have changed the game over the last decade seriously transforming how viewers consume media. We have the classic binge-worthy full-season release, a weekly one-episode release, or a little combo of the both, with shows like WandaVision on Disney+. The introduction of full-season releases made streaming services addictive and never-ending. It also changed standards for the number of episodes in a season. Based on their own research, Netflix opted to have their own original series span from around 8-10 to episodes a season. This has affected all the original content from streaming services alike. Audiences' long-term attention spans have been tailored to fit this shorter season structure too. Seasons become more jam-packed with intensity while plot structures start to become very fast-paced. It's almost hard to take a breath. Because of this extremely quick plotline turnaround, we've lost a bit of comfort television in the process. Warm shows like Gilmore Girls, where they ran for 45 minutes per episode with an average of 22 episodes per season, have almost gone extinct for streaming exclusives. Now, you can never catch a break within a series. When we're looking at how streaming services have changed the way we consume and produce content, we can't ignore the insane specificity. Network TV has a limited amount of airtime, so when pitch season rolls around, the only shows that are greenlit are the ones that appeal to mass amounts of viewers. Streaming services provide content for hundreds of millions of viewers, with no limit on how much content they can show at one time. 
According to Fox Business, Netflix alone had 183 million subscribers in the United States at the end of March 2020. All of these people can choose from any of the U.S. Netflix library titles, which number roughly 5,000. In comparison, NBC has only 40 shows running right now. This huge difference allows for streaming services like Netflix to be incredibly specific. Are you looking for visually striking movies for ages 11 to 12? Cerebral Scandinavian movies? Wine and beverage appreciation? Weirdly, me neither. But if you're a 10 and a half year old who loves thinking and drinking, boy, has Netflix got the categories for you. These are only a few of the particular groupings you can find on streaming services. These categories help create a media bubble. Essentially, you watch what you want to watch. No more, no less. Widening your worldview ain't for everyone, but now it seems like we don't have a choice. Streaming services aim to sell the most content to the most people. Ergo, hyper-specific categories. Now there really is content made just for you, and so you keep watching. This is the reason why you see almost no TV shows about college students. By the book, college students don't watch a lot of TV, are seen as an exclusive, high-class group, and don't appeal to a wide range of people. Networks don't want to buy these shows, just as they don't want to buy shows targeted to specific races or ethnicities. Streaming services give voice to these groups, but at the cost of isolating you within the group. Watch one show targeted towards college students, and bam, targeted content out the wazoo. Suddenly, it's 22 Jump Street non-stop, which I guess works if you really appreciate the Tatum Hill collection. TV seems to be booming right now, as streaming platforms abound and viewer algorithms become increasingly more sophisticated. At the same time, a proportional blow is being dealt to the film industry, though entirely in the opposite direction. We all know the unique thrill of a Friday night at the movies with friends, pre-pandemic of course, munching on popcorn, whispering gossip, and trying our very best not to draw glares from the entire theater while unsuccessfully attempting to open a box of chocolate crunch bites. Twas a simpler time indeed. But in all seriousness, these nights out were an entire affair all to themselves. They were the main attraction. They put the show in our version of a dinner and a show. Why did this event make for such a momentous occasion time and time again? Well, it represented a widely held joy and interest for genuinely relatable and thus enjoyable entertainment. It put forth a prospect we could get behind and pursue as peers, as friends, as partners, and even as strangers. It provided us with a way to collectively embrace a representation of human experience we all felt emboldened by in some way, shape, or form. But for better or for worse, the streaming movement has changed all that. For starters, the industry focus on television has driven funding away from more robust film production, creating a contemporary film space largely dominated by reboots and superhero movies. If it's not a prequel or a modern recreation of a beloved classic, it's most likely the sequel in a comic book saga. And in some cases, even the ever-present reboot is transitioning into a TV streaming model. Take Cobra Kai or Marvel's WandaVision, for example. The genre-restricted approach to filmmaking that results from this not only forces writers to cast an exceedingly wider net with every project, if they're ever to achieve any box office success, but it also narrows the space for artistic creativity, expression, and storytelling in film. Increasingly, those with new and more profound ideas for on-screen narratives will look to streaming platforms for a chance at making their dreams a reality. And this shift in entertainment focus is not at all limited to the production and selection of the content produced, 
but rather also includes the mechanisms through which such content is judged and evaluated, aka the Academy Awards. By normalizing the characterization of Marvel movies as annual Oscar hopefuls, and proposing a quote-unquote popular film category for future Academy Awards, just to name a couple of examples, these recent changes to the historically acclaimed award for excellence in film are just another case of television numbers and streaming profits taking the lead in entertainment, leaving everything and everyone else scrambling for solutions in their wake. Whether it's the sudden industry move from film to television, the homogenization of contemporary film catalogs worldwide as a result, or the expanding acceptance of blockbuster hits in otherwise highbrow artistic award circles, streaming is making its mark, and it's not done yet. Okay, so clearly there's quite a bit going on here. Streaming has impacted pretty much every aspect of the film and television industries. Let's shift to the roundtable and keep trying to unpack all of this as a group. So the first question I wanted to tackle is, you know, we've seen how streaming has impacted film and television. You know, these models that have been around for 100 100 years, some of them, right? But... We've also seen some new models come about, such as Quibi. Oh, yes. It was short-lived, infamous death. What does that kind of, what does its fate sort of say about us and our relationship to streaming? Well, I think it's really interesting to look at that Quibi was originally seen as like a platform that would give, I guess, a platform of its own to, to creators, not kind of like a, higher quality YouTube, let's say. And I think that like in its own is super ineffective because you would see, you know, content creators or celebrities like Sasha Velour, uh, Drag Race season nine winner. You know, she could have her own YouTube channel where she puts out this higher quality content and then, you know, gets the money straight from the source that way. But, um, you know, having her own little flick in quibby where it's like 10 minutes cut short it seems almost like you're not you're not giving the viewer enough credit Mm -hmm. yeah I think I I remember reading you know about it (laughs) at the time of its downfall and a lot of it was that you know they were banking on the idea that people have a lot of you know these little in-between times in their day they're standing in line or they're on their commute or whatever and want these little things but you know with COVID, no one's like having those in-between times in their day and don't need those shorter bits because you have all day to be at home watching stuff now. And it kind of just, it seems silly to think like, why would I just want something for 10 minutes when I'm at my home, you know, all the time. I think it's so interesting that Quibi tried to almost take the YouTube space because I think that highbrow artists, quote unquote artists, um, really underestimate what YouTube has and what it can bring. Um, Oscar award winning short films live on YouTube and do very well there. And Quibi was saying that YouTube just wasn't classy enough for the highbrow viewer and decided to just throw 
stars at the screen and was hoping that it was going to stick. And they kept backing themselves up with science, essentially saying (laughs) people only have a short attention span, can only pay attention to a 10 minute episode. Whereas if I have 10 free minutes, I'd rather watch the first 10 minutes of a 30 minute show or watch a YouTube video or at this point in my life, scroll on TikTok because, (laughs) right, because they just, they, uh, what Max said, they don't give the viewer enough credit. We don't need something designed for our short attention span. We'd rather ignore our short attention span and power through anyway. Yeah, Sam, I totally agree. I think that idea of uh, trying to speak on behalf of the viewer and trying to kind of show viewership and the control of viewership as a science uh, really backfired on Quibi in this case because they tried to play off this, you know, quote unquote scientific support for um, viewers having a short attention span and that this was a recipe for success in the case of Quibi structure. But then it ended up backfiring despite their seemingly kind of foolproof, or at least how they promoted it, foolproof um, approach to obtaining viewership. So I think it's really interesting how even when they have it down to the science with regards to maximizing viewers and having a successful uh, structure for a business or for a, for a streaming business, that can still backfire when the viewer kind of realizes what is being assumed about them and uh, to what degree they're comfortable or uncomfortable with that. I was going to say, like, there almost wasn't really any selling point for me personally. You know, I saw it and I was like, this is just a weird, like, um, high budget YouTube. And that even takes away the personality of it all. And like, the you know, like, oh, this isn't really coming from the creator alone. It's coming from this bigger, higher up business. It's like, I don't think that's why we even like that content. Like, you're giving us this really personalized content made by this person, but like, controlled by the big man. So it didn't make sense. Yeah. Now, speaking of the big man, I guess that one could argue that this sort of same approach could apply to algorithms in general, right? Like we see on Netflix or whatever. And, you know, we've mentioned a lot in these past few minutes that it sometimes feels like the audience isn't really getting credit for their taste or for their attention span or whatever. Um, Yeah. Do you think that that kind of bleeds over into streaming in general? Have you felt that? Yeah. I, I mean, I personally think that as audience members and consumers, we need to realize when streaming platforms and other um, providers of entertainment content are kind of going against what we want. You know, like I think a lot of times we take whatever's given to us and then we just kind of pick and choose and and just accept it for what it is. Um, and whenever the entertainment industry is going in a direction that kind of implies taking away our sense of uh, choice when it comes to entertainment or our sense of you know. Uh, discriminating between like an action film and like, you know, some other genre. So I think we have a responsibility as consumers just as much as uh, a creator or um, an entertainment company does of accounting for the audience member um, when it comes to making that content um, and and what that implies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's really, it's hard because it's so easy to sort of get comfortable Mm -hmm. with the algorithm and like, you know, you forget to question it mm-hmm. a lot. And I think that's kind of this symbiotic relationship between us as the viewer and them as the producer, you know, the more that we kind of click into it, literally, we we click on what they want us to click on and watch what they want us to watch. It's only making that stronger and making it easier and easier for us. And I think we need to be 
conscious of that cycle and try to actively break it. The entire industry just plays such a role in reinforcing the algorithm because, you know, Netflix, for example, and I use Netflix because I think it's a streaming service that most Americans use. Um, Mm -hmm. They they push their press releases and say this is going to be the next big thing. Take Bridgerton, for example. Um, They had star power. They had Shonda Rhimes. And they said this is going to be Shonda's Mm -hmm. next big thing. And so media turns around, reviews it heavily. And suddenly everyone you know is watching Bridgerton and it's getting pushed to the top of Netflix's top 10 in the U.S., And so you're seeing it there on your homepage every single day and it's all your friends want to talk about. And I mean, look, I have no desire to watch Bridgerton, but (laughs) but, you know, when my roommates are sitting around watching it on our communal TV because they've heard from their friends or their family that it's the show and they read a review in Vulture the other day that said it's the best new show online. That's what we end up watching. And yeah, I mean, I I as I am every streamer's best case scenario. I'm too tired at <laughs> night to look for something new to watch. I don't care enough to look, which is a problem, mm-hmm. arguably a problem. And I'll watch whatever they want me to watch. I mean, I've watched Outer Banks like four times because it che- keeps showing up in the top 10 and it's right there in front of me and it's easy. I don't have to think about it. Yeah, I think that honestly, the top 10... Sometimes I really question if they're if they're actually showing us the metrics or it's yes. like we really need viewership here and it yeah. works perfectly. Right. It's the first mm-hmm. thing you see, you have the little badge there. Ooh, it means something. And it doesn't even mean like, oh, this is high rated. It just means like people are watching this, so like maybe you should too. And I'm no, so guilty. No, it's like of that. it's like yeah, it's like herd mentality. Mm-hmm. It's like if everyone else is watching it, it must be good, right? Even if it's, you know, they just trick us into thinking that. But yeah, I really like what you said, Sam, too. I think it's so important to remember that it's not just the the media company, not just the streaming companies, mm-hmm. right? This is a relationship amongst, you know, all anyone who engages in culture is, is, you know, helping to enforce this. So I think that's really important to remember, too. OK, now we're living in this, right? I think it's it's there's no doubt that streaming is what is now right mm-hmm. um but what's like what is the future of this going to look like i i feel like we're in a state of flux right now everything's sort of shifting but what do you see the future of this looking like because my fear is that it's just going to be like every you know platform there's going to be so many of them that you feel like you're going to need to subscribe to all mm-hmm. of them and then you're paying as much as you would for cable mm-hmm for all these streaming platforms, but then you have too many options and you never even use all of them, you know? I do see that happening, you know, flaw of capitalism. But um, (laughs) I think that, I know Juan mentioned earlier about, you know, film and going just to the movies and how, you know, that experience right now is being diminished and hopefully it will come back. But I I do see it coming back as this kind of, um, you know, production companies seeking this, you know, extra level of, like, excellence to put their media on. Because, yes, we do have, this was supposed to be in the theaters, but it's an HBO Max. But, like, we're, I think we're going to reach that spot again where it's, like, these are the movies and they're in the theaters. And maybe, 
you know, indie film will change forever. Maybe that realm will be completely different. But I do think that we're going to see a resurgence in, you know, physical film and television experience. And, you know, maybe it'll just be like a lot of weird Netflix exclusives that are only at the theater. I really see an indie streaming platform coming because I know. Imagine. I didn't think about that. Wow. (laughs) Um, Because the facts are creatives love streaming services because there aren't rules. Whereas Mm -hmm. networks Mm -hmm. and studios give you so much content rules to wade through. So many that, you know, Shonda Rhimes... For example, I go back to her because <laughs> her deal is very hot right now with Netflix. Um, and she was also oh, one of the hot. first. Oh, it's hot. <laughs> she was one of the first producers to get this kind of deal um, with a streaming service. But she has spoken time and time again about how much of a relief it is creatively to be on Netflix now as opposed to her work with ABC. Um, and she just doesn't have the same restriction anymore. And so I, indie films consistently push the envelope. That's kind of their whole jam. Um, they're not what everyone wants to see and that's where they live and where they love. Mm -hmm. Um, and so people aren't going to, when people go to the theaters again, which hopefully like will happen, um, as a theater goer myself, I'm a lover, but, but people are going to go to theaters again for Marvel movies, for these like big summer blockbuster type movies. And as a person who likes indie films, I'm afraid that their presence is going to die out as these like small art house theaters are going. And so Mm -hmm. I see them specifically indie films turning to a streaming service, which I think will provide an interesting bend to the argument that like streaming services are soulless and they're just making like dozens of the kissing booth over and over again and (laughs) no one needs to see it which agreed but if there's a streaming service that's putting out this artistic content what do we then view streaming services as yeah absolutely one thing i wanted to add was um you know that talk of indie film going to a streaming platform just kind of pushes that idea of of the streaming platform being the future of entertainment in many ways, despite maybe a resurgence of, of, you know, theaters and things after the pandemic, that might be more of kind of a niche, uh, you know, way to get uh, or way to pursue entertainment as opposed to just the streaming being kind of the, the run of the mill way of, of being entertained on a day-to-day basis. Um, But kind of hearkening back to what Emily said before about this symbiotic relationship and how we as consumers and as audience members need to, remain aware of the fact that that is the relationship, right? And that there, it isn't a one-sided affair um, with us just kind of uh, existing at the mercy of whatever streaming companies want us to, to consume. Um, and I think by being aware in that way, we can make sure that the content we're consuming isn't just the next like summer blockbuster, but is actually in, you know profound art, uh, whether it is at the theater or um, using a streaming service. Yeah. I think that one one last point, um, kind of combining what you both just talked about, I think, you know, the the indie streaming service, the difference between that and something like Netflix is what's driving it, right? With an indie streaming service, it's people and people's work and it's this human connection between their work and you viewing it. Whereas with some huge monster like Netflix, it's all 
machine driven, it's computer driven and it's, it's just trying to get the most clicks and the most money. So I think, you know, having humans at the, at the helm, I think would make a huge difference. And yeah, I think that, um, you know, indie streaming service has the, um, possibility to be more utopic, whatever it is, you know what I mean? I think that we could see something similar to a forum built into it, you know, somewhere where the viewers have a say and there's a system there in place because, you know, like Sam said, you know, indie films, like they're trying to, they're trying to start it, you know, they're, they're the tastemakers overall, you know, of the drama and the artful films. So I could see there being that, like, they're actually taking the user and the viewer into account in a different way that maybe will be great, you know, maybe. I think it's just a difference between an emphasis on people and serving the people. When you're serving the people, that's getting the people to pay for your content. But when you're about the people, that is you almost selflessly providing the content to like further thought as opposed to a little bit more money in the bank. So what I'm hearing is that it's not all grim as long as we you know don't all turn into robots and yep, pretty much <laughs> turn in on each other which is is my biggest fear at the end of the day with all of these algorithms and stuff but i think that's a good place to stop thank you so much for listening to this week's analytical episode of arts interrupted this has been brought to you by our content team exceptional executive producer Emily Ohl, wholesome senior editor me, Max Rosenzweig, and our rad content producers and two new hires, Juan Gonzalez and Sam Goldenberg. Get hype for these two. They got it on lock. Our audio team, as always, is engineer Spencer Harris and producers Ben Schreier, Sam DeBose, and Will Peterson. We can't wait to show you what we got in store. Stay golden, folks. I'm shaking every time.